listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, a show where we cover the last 7 to 10 days in the world of Apple news, reviews, rumours, roundup, gossip, tech and, well, basically... Anything else that catches our eye, this is the Essential Apple Podcast. Indeed it is, and uh, this week Mark is out and about enjoying a social life uh, like real people uh, and not here podcasting with me, but in his stead I have Scott Wilsey, formerly I believe of the Pocket Sized Podcast, is that correct Scott? Yes, yes very formerly. And <laughs> and now you co-host, do you not, the Don't Nihongo It Alone, I believe. Yes, it's that, yeah, very infrequently, yeah. I think we've done four <laughs> episodes in in four months or something, I don't know. Anyway, but yes, I do. And that, uh, as I understand, that's a that's about the experience of learning Japanese. Is that correct? Yeah. The idea, I think, is just to provide resources and talk about things that we've used in, in our Japanese learning experience or, or either Japanese learning or Japanese refresh or whatever. It's just basically talking about resources that uh, are out there and the stuff that we use. Okay. Well, that's good. So anybody who's listening who is learning Japanese or is interested in learning Japanese, perhaps they can uh, look out your show. And so, welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, Scott, and uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, is there anything, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself before we move on to this week's stories? Oh, I don't know what would amuse people. Um, I'm an old guy. I've been using Apple products for a long time. Uh, my when I was a kid, my brother had an Apple II Plus, I guess I don't remember. And then uh, that my first own computer that I owned myself was the 1984 Mac. And then I've pretty much been using Apple most of the time since then. Although I did take a few years away to use PCs only due to job-related circumstances, and I actually got back into Macs in about 2004. So there was probably about 10 years between. 1994, well, I guess it'd be more than, yeah, 10 years between 94 and 2004, probably it was that I was not using Macs. But other than that, I'm definitely an Apple guy. Oh, well, that's good. You probably missed the worst period then. Exactly. <laughs> you dodged, yeah, you dodged the performer quadra power 52, right. 54, 62, 66, 100 series, which was not to say that they were all necessarily bad machines, but that is certainly when Apple was in a bit of a dark place and... Uh, the product mix was somewhat confusing. I remember it with less than fondness. <laughs> so, yes, shall we move on then? Well, the first story I, I uh, came across was this one. Apple puts voices into people's heads quite literally. Uh, I dug this up on Wired uh, via Daring Fireball. I have to say it was John Gruber who uh, posted something that caught my eye. Um, and this is that Apple have been working with a company called Cochlear to connect people's iPhones directly to uh, cochlear implants, which are used for uh, or by people with extreme hearing loss. Uh, did you did you have a look at that one? Yeah, I thought this is a pretty fascinating article because the the concept of Apple 
directly tapping into implants is pretty interesting. It 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 bodes well for an interesting future. Um, obviously, the first thought I had when I saw this was security. Um, you don't want people getting to your brain through your iPhone. To your brain, I mean, obviously through your ears, but still, yeah. you could drive somebody crazy pretty fast. Um, but no, it's pretty cool. I think uh, the fact that Apple's working on this and the fact that they took the care that they did to make it work the way it does to benefit people who really need this is it's pretty neat. They cited an example of a guy who was in a restaurant with his wife and he has hearing issues. So he basically just pointed his iPhone microphone at his wife and he could basically hear her and tune everything else out. And I thought that is a pretty cool, pretty cool example of how that would you know be better than something like a basic hearing aid or something like that yeah i i uh, i don't know about uh, where you are but here in in uh, in the uk not so much for cochlear mm-hmm. implants but we have you'll find in a lot of uh, places like banks and uh, post offices and what such like libraries they have um, induction loops available for people who use uh, induction loop hearing aids which are, are are similar they're not quite the same as a cochlear implant but you will you will see people here who have a it's almost like a socket or a plug um behind in on the bony lump behind their ear where they implant something and then uh, mm. that is used to stimulate the the auditory nerves um so it, it's that kind of thing isn't it and uh I, I was quite interested by that. I thought it was, again, one of Apple's kind of how they take accessibility really quite seriously. I think this is definitely one of those that uh, Uncle Tim would be saying, you know, we don't look at the bottom line on this. Uh, yeah. It's, and yet, it, I it still, was, sorry. I, yeah. I think it will no, benefit right, Apple yeah. in the future, though. I oh, mean, yeah. This kind of thing. It can't help but. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's multiple motives for doing this, and I think um, I, I think that's fine. I think that's great. I mean, it was quite interesting here that uh, we spent a lot of time tuning the solution to meet the requirements of the battery technology. Um, and Apple understood that, as with all wireless links, some data packets will be lost in transmission. So the team figured out how to compensate and retransmit as needed. Uh, which, yeah, obviously, if you're using a, a hearing implant, <laughs> it's fairly important. And you don't want the old that and it uh, is because uh, uh, that's no use to anybody, is it? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I did also like the, uh, was it at the end here, the guy was saying that, uh, what was he saying? He said that he actually envied some of the users on the fact that they could play music directly into their head with nobody else hearing it. And uh, Mm -hmm. again, that they could effectively, uh, yes, if they wanted, they could tune everybody else out. completely and just uh have the sounds in their head i that that struck me the whole thing as you know very much the way that apple go about these things i mean we've seen the i think we've all seen the videos that they've done before about how they help blind people and uh the way that they've you know they've made big efforts haven't they to help particularly with the watch they made a load they put a load of effort into figuring out how the watch would detect if you were using a wheelchair manually propelled wheelchair so that wheelchair users could take advantage of using the the fitness tracking in the watch so i mean i like that sort of thing i think it it shows that they're not just taking the obvious angle as it were right it's always always i always think that's nice to know don't you that there are people out there who don't just take the straight white guy approach and think there are other people out there with other needs yeah ways that they can be helped because i think economically speaking most companies can and do kind of ignore that and don't treat it as seriously as apple does and it doesn't really hurt their bottom line 
and Apple could probably do the same thing and not really have it affect their bottom line too much, but they choose not to do that. And I think that's great. I like that. Yeah. I really do like that. I, I, I do like that. I've always, I've always thought that that's, you know, they, they really do seem to put a lot of effort into accessibility for, well, for everybody and uh, wherever they can, you know, wherever they seem able to uh, put their finger in the pie and make things a little bit better, they seem to take that chance, whether it's of direct economic benefit or not, which is really rather nice. Well, what else What else happened this week? The new iOS beta, was it uh, developer 5 slash public 4? Is that the numbering we're on now? I lose track. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. development five. I think it's public beta for you. Yeah, the public beta uh, is one behind. As far as I can work out, the the developer build usually comes out a couple of days before the before the public. But the as far as I can tell, they're the same build. And, yeah, they uh, are. I, I think the developer build one that one never makes it to the public because that's probably mm-hmm. you know, really rather <laughs> even more unstable than uh, than most people. You know, even yeah. people like me who don't mind running out on the bleeding edge and uh, tripping over the lumps and bumps of running a beta. Although I've, I've said before on other shows, I've always found the iOS betas to be really very, very good. I've never, I've never encountered a show-stopping bug. Usually I encounter things that one or two programs that won't launch or are no longer stable, but I've never had anything that I considered essential to using my iPhone fail mm-hmm. to work, uh, or at least pass the first public beta. I'm usually the same way. Um, it varies, though. Some, some of the public betas have been amazing right from the word go. This one, for me on my iPhone, I have an iPhone 6S Plus, and when I got this iPhone, it could easily last a day and a half without recharging. Uh, it Over time, with updated versions of iOS, it's gotten less and less. But when I first installed, what was it? I think it might have been the Beta 2, developer Beta 2. I can't remember which one I first installed. Or it might have even been the first public beta. It might have been that. Anyway, whichever one I first installed, I was getting like three and a half hours battery life. And I couldn't do that because usually I'm at work for 12 to 13 hours. So I downgraded right away. But now I think I I think I went back on with developer beta four and or sorry, developer beta yeah, developer beta four because we're on developer beta five now. Yeah. So I went back on with developer beta four and it's been okay. The battery life's still not great, but it easily makes it through the day. Yeah. Well, that's quite interesting. Um I mean in the Slack room we've had a few discussions, Mac Jim there has had a few issues he's he's running the beta on an ipad i'm not sure which one and he's picked up several issues some of which don't appear to apply to the phone because i couldn't replicate them on my iphone 7 but again nothing really show stopping early on in fact i think he still has an issue if you if you attempt to toggle the wi-fi on and off from the control center if you if you swipe up and turn the wi-fi off with the control center and then you go to the actual settings app it it doesn't do what you expect it to it turns off the automatic join this network but it doesn't actually turn the wi-fi off i don't think that's a bug they so they've changed how it works 
Because if you turn off your Wi-Fi, I, I think that's on purpose. Because uh, if you turn off your Wi-Fi, this happens to me as well. And I, I read somewhere that this was a deliberate change by Apple. Basically, what it does is it temporarily disconnects you from that network. But if you go to where you have another network that you know, like when I go between home and work, when I hop in the car, a lot of times I'll turn the Wi-Fi off. But when I go to work, guess what happens? It automatically joins the work network. And that's because uh, it's actually, to be honest, it's the way my work Android phone works. I've, I always hated that about Android too, was uh, I, it's an older version of Android that we have, but um, it, it you turn off Wi-Fi and it immediately joins. Hey, I found a network. And it just keeps doing it incessantly. So I finally gave up trying to manage it. But now iOS is a little bit more like that. And I don't know how I feel about that because I it drove me nuts with my work phone. Yeah, I don't know. We just found it, it strange. Not, I mean, maybe it's partly just because what we're used to, but I kind of, I've always worked on the principle that pressing the Wi-Fi button actually kills the Wi-Fi totally. You're just mm -hmm. turning the radio off. Right, you want to, yeah. Um, and I, I think unless they make it clear that that's what it's doing, because a lot of the time, one of the main reasons, of course, that people want to turn their Wi-Fi off is because they're getting short of battery. And it's like, well, if I turn the Wi-Fi radio off, you know, that's going to preserve my battery life. And if um, flipping that switch isn't actually turning the Wi-Fi off, it's just disconnecting you from the current network. Mm -hmm. I think there might be a few people who get a bit miffed about that. But as you say, these, these things get worked out. He's sent feedback, you know, pointing out that it doesn't be behave how he expects it to i assume apple will either write to him saying it's meant to work that way and perhaps we need to you know, document it better or maybe a load of people will contact them via feedback saying i don't like this and they'll change their mind about how it works but anyway uh i tracked down a video on youtube uh, the links will be in the show notes of course where a guy has documented nearly a hundred minor tweaks and refinements in the latest beta and uh, some of them really are very very minor but it's an interesting watch it's not very long uh, points out all sorts of tiny alterations and refinements uh, some of which you do think wow you have way too much time on your hands man uh, like where he started taking a lot of the icons into Photoshop and overlaying the previous version and the current build version to see if there was any difference and pointing out things like oh the corners on this icon have reduced by one pixel radius or such like but there there are other uh, more useful things it's not a bad watch i have to say and it just i i guess as uh as carl said when i was on the mac and forth show last week it's um it's nice to know really that there are people in apple who are working on it so obsessively that build after build they're you know they really are worrying about one pixel radius on the corners of icons dedication i suppose dedication dedication <laughs> dedication all right well uh, let us see what have we now uh of uh, well the will the next apple watch have its own cellular connection um the one i've got is uh, linked in the show notes is from the bbc but of course this has been all over the, all over the blogs and the tech pages uh the only thing i have to say about it really is yes you can do it. i'm not convinced that it actually adds a huge amount of utility to the watch but that could just be me um maybe there are plenty of people who really would like this i'm not personally convinced that it adds a huge amount and the only other thing i've got to say is uh, brian brian chaffin on tmo i think it was pointed out that everybody's going they're going to put lte in it and that's would appear to be massive overkill for what the watch is likely to need and that perhaps 3g would be perfectly adequate uh, have you got any thoughts on that are you an apple watch user no, I, I don't have an Apple Watch yet. Um, I just haven't been able to justify it to myself quite yet. But 
I, I guess with regard to the LTE thing, I think it would be, it might work out nice for people who want to exercise and not take their phone with them as well. I don't know. But then again, when you're exercising, how much fiddling with it are you doing other than tracking what you're doing? So I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think with regards to maybe why they're putting in LTE versus something else is I think that's basically the chipset they're going to get from whoever. I, I think whether it be Qualcomm or according to this article, Intel might provide it. I think I pretty sure that's just what they're going to get. I Maybe it's overkill. Maybe the battery drain will be bigger. Maybe it won't. I guess it depends on this new chipset or whoever they get it from. But I, I think that's probably more a function of that's what you're going to get. We're not going to go back and make 3G modems for you. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's a good point, of course. Uh, often, you know, despite what we think, older tech isn't always cheaper or even available anymore. A lot mm-hmm. of manufacturers just won't go back, will they? Um, I mean, I've noticed recently and several people have pointed out to me that if you want to get hold of uh, the smaller SD cards in the sort of 4 gig, 2 gig, 4 gig range, Mm -hmm. they're now either no longer available or they cost more money than an 8 or 16 gig one. And I can only assume that that's just as, you know, as demand for certain sizes wanes, the economies of scale fall away and it's no longer you know, no longer viable. Um, yeah. Because uh, uh, here, until fairly recently, you you could, you know, just pop down to the shop and pick up a, a sort of a two or four gig SD card and it cost you about four pounds, you know, four or five pounds. And of course, you could mm-hmm. buy them cheaper online, but if you just wanted to nip out to the local supermarket and pull one off the shelf. But uh, they seem to be disappearing. Or, they're, as I say, the prices of, of the smaller ones seem to be... It's now no longer economical, really, to purchase one unless you absolutely have to have that size. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know, really. I I just personally can't see a huge amount of utility in directly connecting your watch to the to the wireless you know the wireless cellular network but uh, Mm -hmm. maybe that's just me it may be something that's forward looking like eventually we assume that whatever technology we all carry on a regular basis it's going to be small and it's going to be always connected and you know i think there's going to be a lot of intermediate steps to get there this is probably one of those it probably right now won't make everybody happy or change everybody's lives but maybe in the future it'll be something that's just taken for granted and it does do something for people i don't know no yeah i mean (laughs) I, I'm I'm no tech visionary. Got obviously um, the only you know, the only real benefit I could see directly in having LTE is yes, you could make a Dick Tracy phone call from your watch without having to have your phone in your pocket. Uh, I I also the biggest thing I think for a lot of people in this country is you know are we going to get stung for yet another right. monthly exactly. charge? Yep, yep, um, yep. You know, the, I can imagine the carriers using this as a way to stick you with another few dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, there's no re. You know, the carriers are the carriers, and they're going to use it as an excuse to sting us. Whereas I think the more idealistic amongst us would say, "Well, you've got all this data on your phone. Why can it not be using a tiny trickle of that amount uh, at no extra charge?" But that's not how carriers tend to work, is it? Yeah, I don't see that. I don't see that happening. I'm with you. I'm pretty sure it's going to cost at least something. 
Yeah, unfortunately so. Uh, and that, you know, that in itself strikes me as possibly somewhat off-putting. It was hard enough to justify the cost of getting an Apple Watch in the first place. Um, as listeners know, I actually purchased a second-hand Series Zero um, Black Sports Apple Watch when I had a, a small windfall, and that cost me £150, which is about as much as I was really prepared to spend. And I have to say I've been very, very pleased with it. I'm, I'm, I really enjoy it. I really love it. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who kind of say, say or said, "Oh, well, the, the Series Zero is is slow and laggy, and oh, I couldn't wait to get a Series One or a Series Two for improved performance." But I, I can't say that I've ever noticed. You know, it does it does what I want it to do, and I do not find. Um, I mean, Earth on on the, the cult cast uh, constantly, you know, complains that he hates the fact that when he turns his wrist to look at the time, there's a there's a split second. Uh, Delay before the before the watch face displays. I can't uh-huh. say that I've noticed it, and even if it is there, it's <laughs> it certainly isn't enough to bug me. But uh, each to their own, I suppose. Um, obviously, such things. I'm sure the newer one. I know that the newer ones have a brighter screen and they have a faster chip. And but I can't say that I've uh, at no time have I kind of looked at my watch and thought, "Come on, come on, hurry up." Yeah. So. And and as you were saying, Scott, about, you know, multiple steps to get where we're going. I mean, I am a big, I am a big believer that uh, eventually we're all going to be wearing some kind of you know, head eyewear slash headgear, which mm-hmm. p- presents a Terminator-esque heads-up augmented reality. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that, hopefully uh, we're not using it to find Sarah Connor, but yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, we've I've seen some of these AR kit demos, and they you know some of them are absolutely amazing. They vary from quite trippy to I mean, one of the more practical, mundane uses you might put it to. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Is the one where they've translated the Apple Maps directions into augmented reality? Have you seen that yeah. one? No, that so, would be nice. Uh, yeah, so in the in the video of the AR kit, what they've done is there's a guy walking down the street and the the Apple Maps directions are being overlaid on the real world rather than on a map on his phone. Fairly straightforward, I would suppose, in you know, quote unquote straightforward. And I can just imagine, you know, in time you're gonna want people are gonna want that directly, you know, fed into their eyes, aren't they? You're gonna want glasses sure. or, or something that we wear that projects backwards into our eye. And I'm I'm pretty sure that's where it's all going to end up eventually in some yeah. kind of headwear. And people sort of say, "Oh, well, it's nonsense and it's rubbish." It's like, well, no, it's not. When there are shifts, aren't there? There are shifts in the way society accepts things. And if you look, but I don't know, you know, why 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 did white periwigs become de rigueur? Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they did, didn't they? You know, you said I'm worried about myself or wondered about myself. That's a good question. You know, why why did <laughs> white bewigged gentleman of the 18th century and why and when did it suddenly fall from favor when did it no longer become yeah, when, the, the way to dress it become yeah. I, I think you're right i think it it just has to be packaged in a way that is palatable for us but it, it it is going that way i mean if you stop and think about it if you if you go outside and look around and look how many people are walking 
with their arms out at a weird angle and their necks down at a weird angle because they're holding their smartphones. There's nothing cool about that either. Uh, I think it's just, for whatever reason, it's acceptable for people to do that, but not to have something on their face. I think it greatly depends on what the thing on the face looks like and a few other details, but I think it will become acceptable. It has to be It has to be better than everybody walking around with their neck bent down, falling into manholes because they're staring at <laughs> yeah, walking. I, just... I mean, I don't know if you... I'm, I'm sure you've seen them. There was a compilation, people doing stupid things because they're walking around looking at their phone, not looking where they're going, and they're mm-hmm. people walking walking into lampposts and yeah walking falling into fountains and falling down the escalators yeah. and all sorts of cr- and it's like yeah really people <laughs> we have light rail near us and we've had two people killed because they were staring at their devices instead of watching the train coming so somebody needs to play the dumb way to die video uh, a bit more often then don't they the australian safety film yeah yeah yeah, yeah. D- don't eat a month old out of date pie you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't do it yeah don't walk on the railway lines the other thing you see as well, I, I notice quite a lot, is if you go into a coffee shop or a public house or a restaurant, you'll see groups of people socialising and whilst they they are sitting in a group and socialising amongst themselves, they'll all have their iPhones out or Android phones and they're half talking to each other and are half interacting with their phone. And seven or ten years ago, people would have thought that was absolutely unacceptable and yet now we do it all the time and nobody seems to take any notice. Mm-hmm. Society changes all the time. Sometimes you only see it when you look backwards, don't you? But I, I'm yeah. pretty convinced that uh, certainly be it goggles or glasses or whatever uh, and and people will make all sorts of accommodations into what they find acceptable uh if it brings them something they want yeah i think so right i'll tell you what scott we'll take a break and we'll let john nemo uh open his hardware store and he can tell us what's been delivered to his store this week take it away john What's that smell hanging around Nemo's hardware store? Wait a minute, is it a book or is it an iPhone case? Yes, it's the incredible Book Book that's spelled B-O-O-K-B-O-O-K. The company is 12 South. That's T-W-E-L-V-E-S-O-U-T-H, 12South.com. We have a brown leather book book for the iPhone 7 and a black leather book book for the iPhone 7 Plus. You can also get them for the previous editions. That's a good word to use in this case of the iPhone. When you open it up, it's leather and more leather. It's got slots on the left side, the open side, for your ID, wallet, and credit cards, and bus pass, stuff like that on both of them. And on the right side is where your phone will be. So the phone snaps in at the back. There is the window for the camera lens. It's not covered. It's fully exposed. And on the outside is the power button opening. And on the inside are the openings for the volume up and down and the mute switches. So it's all there in a folio-style case. These are not slim fit cases. They're a little chunky. They're definitely fashion rearward, fashion retro. It's the Book Book Volume 7, and they are like nothing else you've ever seen. They're $60 in the U.S. Look them up with the links we have on our show notes, plus our Amazon affiliate link, because they are available at Amazon worldwide, and you'll find the price in your unit of currency. If you want a stylish book, you will carry not in your pocket, but in some sort of tote or purse or some sort of backpack. The book book is exactly what you need. Just be aware, it's quality, but it's a little bit chubby, like you would expect. 
with a finely hand-tooled leather volume. Read the specs on the website. There's a little movie there. It tells you all about it, what it has, and how it works. And 12 South has done a beautiful job with the 7 and the 7 Plus in black and brown for $60. A company with a real cool name, Arctic, A-R-C-T-I-C, and their website is arctic.ac, has the best computer speakers you've never heard. They're called the S111 USB-powered portable speakers. These are the speakers I use with my MacBook Pro. They are tiny. They are powered by the USB port, and there's a cable going to it, and the other cable coming out of it goes to the headphone jack, so you can get your audio sound, and there's one for the right and one for the left, and they're connected with another cable. Very, very compact. About two inches cubed. If you can imagine a two-inch cube, with a speaker on the front. That's what the S111 USB-powered portable speakers are from arctic.ac. I've been using these for years. I turn them on and people say, where's that sound coming from? It can't be coming from those tiny little gray cubes. Well, the good news is they're not just gray anymore. They come in gray, black, blue, sort of a reddish pink, green, and white. So six different colors. Please read the reviews. Go to the website to see how these speakers are made. You will think they cannot possibly any good because the U.S. dollar price is $12. Yes, $12 for the Arctic S111 in any one of six colors. Even if you have to double that for your local unit of currency, even if you have to pay shipping, these are really wonderful, excellent sound, especially in a small space at an outstanding price. Well done, Arctic.ac. That's it for Nemo's Hardware Store, the book book, iPhone cases, and the Arctic S111 portable USB powered speaker. Back next week. Thank you, John, for another Nemo's Hardware Store. And this is, of course, the place where we give everybody the obligatory Amazon affiliate link spiel. You know how it goes. Follow the Amazon affiliate link, do your shopping, and whatever you buy, we get a very small cut. And we use that small pot of money to invest in the show in equipment or paying for hosting and the like. And please send us some money because Mark needs a chair that doesn't creak. Please. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you've heard it on other shows, people, but he has a terribly creaky chair and sometimes it drives me mad. Although not as mad as Tim Baharin on this week's Tech Pinions podcast. My God, I had to listen to that show in three sections because Tim's creaky chair was driving me insane. Honestly, it was like, somebody tell him to sit still. (laughs) Really? But there you go. So if you want to buy something from Amazon, follow our affiliate link and we get a very, very tiny cut. And of course, if you want to just help us out any other way, you can join our Patreon and support us that way. Or, of course, you could just send us money. We're not proud. We take stamps, postal orders used bills, anything you'd like to send us. But anyway, that's enough of that, and uh, I think it's time we got back to Scott and moved on to another story. So, Scott, uh, what should we have a look at now? Anything on the list particularly take your fancy? Oh, I kind of was amused and bemused by the uh, firmware update blunder bricks hundreds of home smart locks. Oh, yes, that was... uh, 
that was indeed a classic, wasn't it? Um, yeah. This I I got this from the register via um, Apple News. Yes, they apparently issued a firmware update to their smart Internet of Things lock. Uh, the series was it the series six thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, hardware business Lockstate managed to brick hundreds of internet-connected smart locks on people's front doors with a bad firmware update. Um, I have to admit, I did rather laugh at this one. I'm sorry. Uh, earlier this week, new software was automatically sent out to the 469 Lockstate 6000i lock, one of the top residential smart locks, uh, leaving the keypad entirely useless. Uh, lovely. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, funny, the funniest part about it is, in, so what, basically what they've done is it can no longer it can no longer connect for remote control or updates. So the, basically they have two choices and they both involve either, they, they both involve the lock going away. Either you replace it with one that they send you and you wait a couple of weeks or you send yours back, the back panel of yours back, so they can manually update it, and that takes five to seven working days. So basically, there's a hardware change that has to occur now to fix this. Lockstate said a firmware for its more advanced 7i model had been mistakenly sent to some 6000i customers, which we understand to be 500 or so people. Uh, So apparently, yeah, this firmware has completely broken the lock, as you say. It's no longer able to connect and uh, therefore is completely broken. Not very good. Not very good at all. (laughs) It does bring up a whole lot of issues with, with things that get updated over the internet and that rely on other people to keep them working for you. But, yes, I, don't know. I mean, as it says here, the physical key in the lock should still work, but that's oh, going to be goodness. cold comfort for a lot of Airbnb users who prefer to keep the physical keys to themselves and set an access code for each lodger, which, right. I, yes, I can see the point why you might want to do that. Um, I have to say, however, that a £500 of nearly $500 uh, electronic lock seems a bit over the top. Why not just get one of those sort of push-button code coded locks that you know you see in banks and offices and whatnot? But uh, right. there you go. I guess if you're a, I suppose if you're an absent host, as it were, if you're letting out. Uh, a property in short blocks whilst you're actually away for some time i guess the ability to to do it remotely would have some appeal but uh, mm-hmm. i'm a bit of an these... internet i'm an internet of things refusenik as people who listen to this show know and uh, a lot of it i a lot of it to me seems like just because you could didn't mean you should you know mm-hmm. why do we need to have internet connected toothbrushes and uh, all sorts of other things which really as far as I can see have no right to being connected to the internet and just strike me as a huge security nightmare waiting to happen are you saying you don't want your toilet on the internet yeah, that's it you know um I, th- I think the the one nice thing about these though is compared to the other keypads that you're talking about is they can give different codes for different people so like if you're you could give a new code for every new guest that comes in or whatever so I don't know yeah that is I, the, I think that is the, the I think that is the purpose but I mean I'm sure those those locks that you see in banks and and, and places changed recoded yeah. yeah those could be recoded multiple times to set the numbers 
Um, sure. Obviously, no doubt that would mean you know, physically sending somebody round to the property to change the code. And if you're remote, I, I'm, I, I'm not actually. I can see the utility of this object. I can. I can see. Uh, why places like maybe hotels or, or as it says here, Airbnb hosts or whatever would want one, but it just strikes me as um, awfully expensive. And uh, and with lots of potential for things to go wrong, yeah. And in this case, they have gone wrong, uh, and 500-odd customers are now stuck with broken locks. I uh, wonder, they don't say, but I wonder what percentage that is of the people that bought those. I wonder how many they've sold. I'm guessing they've sold more than 500, but still, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, as always, it says you are one of a small subset of users uh, mm -hmm. who has you know, yeah, well, they're not going to tell you. Yeah, sorry, we just busted all the locks we sold. Right. <laughs> yeah, did you buy one of these, sucker? <laughs> Bad <screwed>. luck. <laughs> You're screwed. Yeah. Um, no. Well, I, I quite right. I found that highly amusing. Um not so amusing if you're an owner of one of these and you're found that your lock is now uh, dis yeah. <laughs> disabled, uh, yeah. useless. Well, not quite useless. You can use the key, but uh, I mean... Right, but you can do that for $30. You don't have to spend 500 bucks <laughs> for that. That is true. That is true. You can indeed. So uh, there we go. I, I think that's about all there is to say about that, really. There's, uh, I, I mentioned when I was on uh, Mac and Forth with Carl that uh, I, I was talking about a story which I, I remembered reading some years ago about a sort of a smart home nightmare. And I managed to track it down. So I did tweet it out and put it on the Google Plus uh, and the like. And I will put a link to it in, in the show notes, I think. It's on Wired. I'm not sure that that's where I read it originally, but I've tracked down the story. And it's uh, sort of set in 2030, and it's all about how this bloke's... Or, in fact, everybody's smart home dream has turned into a horrible nightmare because the radio has been hijacked and the malware has makes his lights come on at 4.30 in the morning and all the rest. I'm afraid I find that... All too, all too believable, shall we say. Mm. All too believable. I am indeed definitely an internet of troublesome things refusenik. Mm -hmm. uh, and anything that's on the internet is going to get hacked. I don't care how long it takes. Some things are going to be hacked right away. Some things are going to be hacked not right away. Some things are going to cause more problems when they do get hacked. But anything that's on the internet, it's going to get hacked at some point. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right there, Scott. I don't think there's... Uh, it's a bit like the old saying about hard drives, isn't it? You know... There are there are only two types of user: those who have lost data and those who have uh, yet to lose data. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of us who are like me, deeply paranoid, triple redundant backup maniacs, mm -hmm. are so because at some point we didn't, <laughs> and it right. cost us. Right. Well, talking about hacking and things getting hacked. How about WannaCry Hero charged with Kronos malware creation? I'm sure we've all seen this. It's all over the it's all over the net. I've got a story from the Telegraph, and uh, I've got one from the Guardian. What what do you uh, what do you think about that one then, Scott? Well, I don't know because either this guy. So it's not improbable or even all that unlikely that somebody who does some bad things also does some good things. But I guess my question is, I guess I'm more of waiting to see how this shakes out because either somebody screwed up really badly and 
arrested and detained somebody for some things they've never done, or this is embarrassing for him because he has done bad things in addition to helping people stop WannaCry. So I don't know. Somewhere, somebody looks bad, but I'm just not sure who yet. Yeah. I, I've the whole lots of people who work in that sort of field say that it's, you know, some of it is, shall we say, somewhat grey because. If you're going to watch what bad actors who make and sell and exploit these sort of malwares uh, do, you often need to effectively hang out in the places they hang out in order to see what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, if you want to, if you want to figure out how malware works, often you either have to build malware for yourself as a proof of concept, or you have to get hold of malware and reverse engineer it. Right. Um, the you know there's a lot of people in the kind of infosec uh, business at the moment who are watching it very carefully because I think some of them are very frightened that some of the things they do in order to find out how to combat malware and ransomware and such things might be effectively uh, being painted as criminal in it in and of itself, which right, yeah. is you know that's not going to be good for anybody. I know that some of these people have to tread a fairly thin line between what's morally acceptable and what's means justifies the ends kind of things. But um, the biggest thing for me, which says that this guy didn't do that, uh, seems to be obviously a lot of his friends say that that's not, not his bag. But the biggest piece of evidence that I've seen brought up is the fact that when Kronos first surfaced, he has been recorded as asking people on various forums if somebody had a sample of it for him to examine, which would seem a strange thing to be doing if he wrote it. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, he could still have... I mean, that's also an obvious deflection technique too, but it's... It is, but hard to know i mean i i totally agree with you though that it gets scary really fast for security researchers and security experts who need to do things like you said they need to sometimes they need to build malware sometimes they need to acquire malware they have to hack things in order to know how things work and how to protect against hacking and we've already seen cases in the past already of government agencies or companies turning around and charging or suing people who have brought their to their attention, security issues. And instead of, you know, basically the answer is shoot the messenger. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reactionary tendencies on the half of both private and public institutions that are very unhelpful. And I can easily see things getting even worse that way. And this type of thing doesn't help whether he's guilty or not. This case doesn't help that situation. I don't think. No, I don't think it does. Um, Sometimes I get the impression or you get the feeling very much that certainly at the moment there's a lot of administrations who seem to be kind of working on the principle that we want people like that working for us in the CIA, NSA, you know, GCHQ, whatever. Um, and if you're not working for us, you're a viable target for us to take down. I don't want to get yeah. political, but I get the distinct impression that certain political uh, philosophies or parties believe very much that it's all right for us to have all these uh, exploits, malwares, um, uh, intrusion techniques and all sorts of other things, but we don't want anybody else either working on them or figuring out how to prevent them. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. 
There's a certain amount of tinfoil hat in that, I admit, but I don't know. There's some there's some pretty unpleasant things being bandied around at the moment, you know, with regard to the internet and there. There's there's people talking about overthrowing net neutrality. There are people who say they want to break into end encryption or ban it or put holes in it or yeah i think almost every government in the world is is pushing towards some version of that right now i don't think there's any that are i mean well, you know major the, governments the european I'm sure if it's the european parliament or the european commission there was a group there who effectively have put forward the exact opposite view um, and they are saying that actually end-to-end encryption, you know, they would like to see end-to-end encryption not only mandatory, but that, that tech companies should also be um, protected by law from being um, strong-armed into attempting to reverse engineer it, put holes in it, backdoor it, or anything else. Whether that will come to anything, I couldn't say. I certainly know that there are people in our government here in the UK who very much like to wave the terrorists, think of the kiddies, what about the paedophiles right. flag, uh, which are the ones those, that, you know, yeah, they, these people, you know, these people are out there, don't get me wrong, right. you know, but they always but, wave that flag as nobody should be allowed to have any any secrets whatsoever for so that we can catch this, you know, 0.001% of the population who want to do bad things. Right. And the problem they the problem is that most of the people making those arguments do not understand that it's technically impossible to do the one without ruining things for everybody. It's you know, ruining everybody's security on the internet is a really bad idea when everything we do is on the internet and it requires security. Yeah. I mean uh, banking, that is, uh, everything. 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 And unfortunately, yes, the, the one of the scariest things you, you find is the people who put forward these theories quite blatantly have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. And even the ones like that do, the like Austin. the NSA is famous for, you know, they claim that they work with companies to help them address uh, vulnerabilities. But in fact, we know that they just stockpile tons of vulnerabilities that they never disclose. And sometimes it comes out to bite them when those things get uh, released by people that they don't want to have released. It's just... They, you know, their assumption, their arrogant assumption is that they can stockpile vulnerabilities and no one else will ever find out about them and use them and that it's worth not telling companies about them so that they can take advantage of them. And it's yeah. just, it's just crazy. Hence I don't know. The, it's... You know. Hence the, hence the Shadow Breakers Vault yes. 7, which I think the yeah. whole point of that is not so much the fact that they're pointing out that the NSA has all this stuff as to actually embarrass them by saying, yeah, you, you know, so much for your security. Security, not quite as clever as you thought. Yeah, I, I get the distinct impression that the the real point of you know re- releasing what they've apparently got from the NSA or wherever it is is exactly about that. It's it's not about what's actually contained in it so much as to Agreed. say you you thought you could lock this up and keep it to yourself. Well, guess what? Not as smart as you think you are. Right. I but think anyway, the point is they can't be trusted when they say that oh we can protect these things and we can have these secrets and they're safe with us because they're not. They're not safe with no, us. No, they're not safe. They are, and as you said, anything that can be hacked will be hacked. It's just a matter of time, isn't it? So, no, I. some of these things are really quite scary at the moment. Well, after that rather depressing <laughs> segment, <laughs> uh, what uh, else have we got realistic. here? Let's not, let's yeah. not call it depressing, let's just say realistic. Yeah, uh, and uh, a rather equally realistic, a.k.a. depressing uh, piece of news. Dougie in the Slack room 
has sent us a piece uh, from Hacker News, which says that Hotspot Shield VPN have been accused of tracking, logging, and selling users' data history, which Mm. um, has put my nose out of joint because I have used Hotspot Shield VPN, uh, the free Mm. tier, for some time. I'm not, I have to say, I'm glad to say, not for anything particularly sensitive, but it is one of, I have used one of two, and, and now it's three, but... Hotspot Shield, Tunnel Bear, and now I have uh, Proton VPN. And I, I mostly use them, you know, when I'm out and about, if I'm in a pub or a restaurant or the coffee shop where you're using free Wi-Fi because everybody knows, or at least should know, you should not use free Wi-Fi without using a VPN. Right. Um. So, yes, I'm a bit miffed because Hotspot Shield... Uh, is one of the ones I use, and it, it would, would appear uh, apparently. Of course, it's not proven yet. I have to admit, this is this is not proven. They have, however, been accused that they are basically doing exactly what they said they don't do, and that is right. keeping a tr- keeping a log of everything you do, which they can then sell. Um, there's a 14-page long complaint filed by the Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, a, a U.S. nonprofit advocacy group for digital rights who have accused Hotspot Shield of tracking, intercepting, or and collecting customer data. If you want to go and read the 14-page complaint, you can. But what it comes down to is they say that they are collecting your data and selling it. Which, if true, is not only morally repugnant, but, well, very upsetting. Because if you can't trust your VPN, who can you trust? Well, that's just it. It's not, I mean, some people may say, well, what's the difference between that and Gmail or Facebook or whatever? Well, the difference is a VPN is a service that is specifically designed to, you know, protect your connection, keep people from snooping on you, blah, blah, blah. And then to turn around and violate that by snooping on you is a little rich. I, I will say this. I'm not surprised. Disappointed? Yes. Surprised? No. I'm, I'll am i be amazed if more of these people aren't doing this because a lot of these VPNs aren't super expensive. And I'm guessing that a lot of these people have a business model of trying to cash in on the backside too. And I the problem with these, there's so many VPN services right now. The problem is they all have great web pages. They all look wonderful. It's really impossible to know for most of these services who these people are, what they're really doing, how are they really making their money, how secure, even if they have the best of intentions, whether they're actually technically keeping you from being spied on. Because I was reading the other day about some malware that can snoop out credentials even when people are using VPN software. Anyway, it's just there's so many unknowns about a lot of these VPN services. I think for anyone who is interested in one, which they should be, and and especially for the types of uses that you're talking about, but even from your own ISPs, because we know the cellular and even the home ISPs here are now fighting to be able to sell your information. And so maybe you just want to stick the finger to them and not let them do that. But anyway, the point is you have to be super, super careful about making a choice with these. Don't just necessarily go for the cheapest one. But it's it's hard to know. It's really hard to it know is. what these guys are doing. Um, I've always said, you know, if you're going to use a VPN, you need to do your research because... Um, what I notice at the moment, uh, certainly over the last probably year, as VPNs have become something that the man in the street might have heard of or become aware of, is I get endless emails 
offering amazing deals on lifetime subscription to this fabulous secure VPN. Mm-hmm. Um, and that always makes me somewhat wary because if your VPN is that fabulous, why do you need to offer me a lifetime subscription for only $25? Um, and I've never heard of you and I've never seen you review, reviewed anywhere. They may be perfectly genuine companies attempting to attract a user base or they might be less than, you know, less than pure yeah. and the, the one of the things about hotspot shield of course is that it's available through the apple store um it's well known or you know they don't constantly say they'll give you a fabulous deal for a lifetime subscription you can use it for free you know which restricts you to using the u.s server um or at least it restricts me to using the u.s server if you use the free version maybe it restricts you to somewhere outside the u.s i don't yeah, know probably, probably, um probably. Yeah, because that that prevents it from, you know, me from using it all of the time for free because things like the Apple Store and the BBC and people that are geo uh, geolocation aware will basically say, if I'm using that, you know, you're in the US and you can't you can't use this service. So you do have to be so careful. But as as a user, as you say, Scott, how how can we know? How do we know these things? Tunnel Bear uh, again, I that is very well known, and I use that. Uh, I have currently uh, disabled my Hotspot Shield VPN and I shall be relying for now on my Tunnel Bear and my Proton VPN. Now, the, the Proton is is currently in beta and I I got an invite, I think, because I'm a Proton Mail user or I have a Proton Mail account. Mm-hmm. Um, several of the guys in the Slack room signed up when I uh, first mentioned it and they're still waiting for an invite. So my... My biggest reason for signing up for that, the minute I saw it, is uh, Proton is uh, free. Well, it's it's not free free, but it's open source software. Uh, it's developed by the guys at CERN. Um, and of course, being open source, people can people are free to go and inspect their code. Um, and they have a variety of paid for tiers, so that's not you know that's not being given away completely for free. But when it comes when it comes to things like VPN, I think I'm fairly heavily in favour of looking like wire which we're using now uh, you know looking at things which are open source so that hopefully they can't be doing anything too nefarious but of course in this sort of case again how would you know you could probably look through the code of the application itself and find nothing because the data collection is not being done there is it data right. collection's being done via the servers and I assume right. what they're collecting is, is metadata from your encrypted tunnel. But, you know, depressingly, we can't tell. The thing about open source is true, is that you can, people can examine the code and see what's going on in it. And that's true of any type of open source software. Unfortunately, as we've seen in the last few years, it often doesn't get done. And there's a lot of open source, open source software with a lot of serious security bugs because nobody's actually ever looked at them. So... I told open source is good. I'm not against it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying just because something's open source, don't necessarily assume that people have scoured through the code. No, that is is true. That is true. I have. Yes, you are. You know, you are 100 percent correct. I suppose what I'm trying to say is, I mean, I wouldn't be able to look at the code of any application and be able to decipher it from ancient Greek or Uh, pre-Sanskrit document. I really couldn't. But I guess the point is, if you really need to know, yeah, people you know, can't if you're a corporation, out. if you're a corporation and you want to 
use a VPN and as far as you can, you know, as far as you can, you want the code audited, then yes. you, ca yep. you can find somebody who will do it for you. You can pay yes. somebody to take that code and go through it and promise you that there is that it is secure and correct and it's not doing anything it shouldn't be. But again, right. as I say, with a VPN, that's not where your problem lies, is it? Your problem doesn't lie inside the VPN itself. The problem lies in whatever they're doing at the server level, which no doubt you don't get to look at. And following on from that, this one I got picked up by Daring Fireball, which is John Gruber again, um, and it seems that there's a VPN which now belongs to Facebook, and Facebook are using it to collect data on what people are doing in order to get a kind of early warning on what is popular and what is worth getting into. So uh, mm -hmm. apparently this is called Onavo, which built an app that secures users' privacy by routing their traffic through private servers. The app gives Facebook an, an unusually detailed look at what users collectively do on their phones, uh, allegedly. Um, yeah. This tool shaped Facebook's decision to buy WhatsApp and informed its live video strategy, they say. Uh, Facebook used Onovo to build its early bird tool that tips it off to promising services which helped Facebook home in on House Party. Uh, now, uh, John Gruber has said here, so Facebook is using a VPN app supposed to protect users' privacy to violate their privacy by analysing which apps they use. Now, obviously, um, again, a bit like... Uh, hotspot. This is alleged, not currently proven, obviously. Um, however, uh, John Gruber does note here, worth noting, in the iOS App Store, Onovo's owner is listed as Onovo Inc., not Facebook. And I suspect a large number of Onovo users have no idea that this app is owned by Facebook. Quite right. Um, I, for one, have never heard of it, uh, right. according to John Same Gruber, way. and nor had I. So, um, but apparently, it's popular. Popular enough that Facebook, obviously, apparently using it to monitor what apps people use uh, mm -hmm. again if true morally repugnant at the at the highest level i think by facebook don't get me started I'll yeah. pull out a negative thing, but... yeah you won't have too much problem with that i'm uh i'm distinctly non-facebook person i have to say yeah. but uh well Again, I don't know. I mean, it's just more, what can we say about that that we didn't just say about Hotspot Shield? It's uh, all part of the same malaise, I suppose. I think in a way you can say, yeah, that ship has sailed because, and people just give up and they're like, there is no privacy. I get that. I understand why people say that and they're probably right, but that doesn't, I, it doesn't mean I like it. I don't know. I it, We... We're in a bad spot when it comes to the internet and privacy and rights and transparency from these companies. It's just they're that's how they make money. And you have to get through these services to get where you're going on the internet or do what you want to do. And if enough of these people are like that, if enough of these companies are like that and they're run by people who are willing to do those things, then every time you use the internet, you just have to know that everybody's basically taking your information and selling it and doing things with it that you don't necessarily know about and probably wouldn't like, but that's just how it is. It, this is, yeah, this is depressing. Yeah, um, I think I think I agree with you there. I, I, I guess what's most depressing about those stories is that they are exactly the kind of services that we as end users 
feel is our last line of defence mm-hmm. against you know everything we do being tracked, monitored, recorded, uh, packaged, and sold. Yeah, if if those services are not are doing it to you too, then what hope have you got other than to rip the Ethernet out of the wall and give up, go live in but, a shack in the woods? <laughs> I, I guess the temptation for these companies would be. We're going to get a bunch of people funneled through our service, which everybody wants. The ISPs want that too, because they can see what you're doing. We're going to get a bunch of people funneled through here and they're trying to, they want privacy. So either they just believe in the principle of privacy, or these are the things that they really want to do that they don't want people to know about, but we get to know and we can use that information. I'm, I'm sure it's tempting. There's a lot of things in life that are tempting that I wish people wouldn't fall for. <laughs> but, well, that's uh, true. That is very, but very I'm sure true, it's a tempting it? business model and there have to be way more of these people doing this. These cannot be the only two, whether they're guilty or not like you said we don't know but these can't be the only two that would be doing things like this no probably not um in a somewhat disheartening it's just depressing isn't it really it's just i have to apologize sad. i'm apparently helping bring down the i'm, I'm depressing all your listeners <laughs> it's very depressing <laughs> <laughs> well that's just the way it goes how, how about something a bit more cheerful then uh, mac jim sent me a link here from the verge uh, sweat blood and tears could power future medical tech and this is a story about flexible batteries, uh, particularly they're referencing here uh, for use in medical technology, being powered by salt water uh, and maybe one day blood, sweat or tears. Uh, lightweight batteries described in a paper can withstand being folded in half a hundred times um, and they're safer because instead of running on toxic chemicals, they are powered by relatively harmless liquids such as salt water or IV rehydration solution. The key being if you have a battery powering a device which is worn or even inside of your body if the battery leaks the stuff won't hurt you well that's i don't know what to say about that really it's 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 good it's it's one of those one of those where it's okay it's really cool but i worry that i'm gonna have to cry or sweat or bleed in order for these things to work and i don't want to do any of those things (laughs) well uh no but i i guess yeah i think the blood sweat and tears part is uh yeah (laughs) a certain bit of flamboyance on the writer i think but that said i suppose if you if what if you were to say i don't know a pacemaker for example and you, rather than having to have some nasty, toxic, corrosive, flammable, mm-hmm. harmful battery um, either attached to your body or even inserted into your body, right. I, I, if you could, you know, if you could create a battery which could maybe even be plumbed into your bloodstream so that as the blood flows through it, it that, that would be a very positive yeah. thing, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, we all yeah, know this that. Is actually, pretty cool. We all know salt water is is a is an electrolyte. I don't quite know how much how you would generate a huge amount of power from um, hmm. yeah a pure saline battery. But then again, I don't know how much power do you need. Right. I'm sure most pacemakers probably run on micro volts. You know. So yeah, I don't suppose actually... you necessarily need to generate a huge amount of energy, would you? No, this is actually a good thing. I'm with you because you know battery technology. Boy, that's. 
that's an area that's still ripe for improvement and uh, anything like this that comes along that helps change things. And like I said, I'd much rather have something like this embedded in my body than a standard corrosive battery. Just the thought of putting any kind of normal battery in my body makes me cringe a bit. Yeah, but people do, don't they? People do have to have um, sure. Oh yeah. batteries of different types with pacemakers or various other yeah, definitely. Uh, things. What have we got here? The batteries come in two forms. One looks like a strip of tape and is made of two flattened electrodes sandwiching electrite in between and the other battery is composed of two tiny threads of carbon nanotubes well that way sounds good doesn't it nanotubes oh, carbon oh, yeah. nanotubes yeah. Uh, the threat incorpor- uh, the thread not threat the thread incorporates specks of positively charged electrode while the other weaves in negatively charged electrodes these threads are then packed together into a tiny hollow tube filled with electrolyte and the idea is that these thread like batteries could one day be woven into wearables or smart clothing oh that's pretty nice. good isn't it nice that's very, uh, um, very neil stevenson-esque yeah uh researchers have experimented with different types of electrolyte the one that worked best was sodium sulfate sometimes used as a laxative but saline solutions which are literally diluted salt water how can you have diluted salt water <laughs> Surely, uh, that's a that's a tautology. Isn't that just called water? <laughs> well, yeah, it's salt water, saline. It is saline. Anyway, uh, eventually, body fluids such as blood, sweat, or tears might take over the role of the electrolyte. Well, oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I have to say, I do. These are the these are the sort of. Um, stories that when they come up you kind of think either wow that's really really cool or why hasn't somebody thought of this before of course sometimes these things come about don't they because although the idea has been around for ages the technology to make it work has not yeah so often these things need a kind of critical mass don't they of of surrounding technology to reach a point for example in Mm -hmm. this one obviously you know the idea of using carbon nanotubes then it doesn't matter how clever the principle is if you can't make carbon nanotubes on an industrial scale then the whole idea is a bit tut Throughout human history, we've seen a lot of times where there's uh, good ideas that people have, and you'll find that different people will be working on the similar or the same things at the same time. It's like a convergence of ideas and technology and other things, social circumstances that makes it all possible at once. It's it's kind of cool to watch. Yeah, I would assume from from what they're saying, it, it's going to well, we know that it's working on a similar principle to the old the school experiment of running a, a digital clock from a potato or lemon or whatever where you stick your two mm-hmm. electrodes into a lemon and watch the clock run um and that's great that's brilliant and batteries do seem to be you know the well people say it's the technology that's lagging behind the rest but of course unlike the silicon and and the rest of the things that we we use to build all these fabulous technical gadgets batteries have don't they they have kind of chemical and, and mechanical limits which is what we're you know the the designers and developers are constantly fighting against um i don't know maybe it was about a year ago i think we covered a story about the guy who invented the lithium ion battery uh who's about 102 or something Mm -hmm. he's really you know he spent his whole life working on battery technology and he announced that he'd kind of i can't remember the details now but he'd come up with a way to make 
lithium-ion batteries not only more efficient but safer because obviously the biggest ah. problem with the biggest problem yeah, with lithium-ion lithium-ion batteries is uh, it, uh, if it's not you know they have very clever tech inside them don't they which prevents them basically from going boom because if they do fail they have a tendency to catch fire pretty spectacularly um I remember that article. I can't remember the details of it now, but yeah, yeah, he'd, I remember reading that. He'd done something about putting, I don't know, was it a glass? I'm kind of, it, it, it was something to do with the with the way the electrodes worked. And I don't remember the details because I'm not a battery technologist, but he said, if I recall, you know, what I can recall is that it would make the batteries about three times more powerful, I think, um, and far, far safer. That the, the way that they work now, if the components inside mix, then you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found a... a... So it looks like instead of using liquid electrolytes, they want to use solid glass electrolytes. Ah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it, of course, it's it, it's fabulous, and that's great. That's really cool and very clever. And then at the end of the article, they rather put the dampeners on and say this could probably take five to ten years to come to a <laughs> commercial prospect. But I suppose it's nice to know that, you know, somebody who spent their whole life working on how to make better batteries has come up with a way to make his already clever battery cleverer still. Mm-hmm. And that even if it is five to ten years before we get these batteries, there is, you know, there is hope on the horizon for better batteries. Uh, yeah. And that's not that far away. No, and that was probably a year or so ago already. So you know, these, these <laughs> that's uh, what well, I mean. Talking about the things that are you know increasing at strange rates. Did you? This isn't in the show notes. This one. Did you see the story about the about the magnetic tape um, data storage? Uh-uh. No, did you not see that one? That was uh, in, in the news. Of, I don't know. In the last week or so. Oh, is this uh, Sony? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure who it was, but they've developed a, a new magnetic tape, which is 250 gigabytes per square inch or something of tape. Oh, yes, uh, yes. I see it. There's, as somebody said, well, that doesn't sound like a lot, does it? You know, 250 gigabytes per square inch. What's so great about that? Yeah. Except when you figure out if you put 400 meters of it rolled up in a... <laughs> Mm-mm. rolled up in a spool you know you've got 330 petabytes or something of data you know some ludicrous amount um yeah this guy this guy's holding a little box that looks slightly bigger than what a floppy disk used to be uh, i can't tell how thick it is and it's a 330 terabyte magnetic tape drive yeah that's the one and it's yeah you can't see exactly from that picture but the, i guess what you know even if it's like the, the the size of the cassette tapes we all used to use you know the standard mm-hmm. compact cassette i mean it's pretty 330 terabytes per yeah. per cartridge that's That'll work. Yeah, obviously, as they point out, not suitable probably for, you know, home user use, but for people who have to store vast quantities of archive material, I don't know, banks and those sort of people, probably fabulous. You could uh, store all of your podcast archives and then the rest of the internet on that one. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah, quite likely. Uh, but can we leave out the one that says you have reached the end of the internet? Can we leave that one off? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Right. Well, those are a bit more cheerful. A bit more cheerful than the other stories. They are. Got. I feel better. Yeah, we feel better already, don't we? Uh, okay. What else have we got left? We're kind of coming to the end of the list, I think. 
Um, we've got consumer reports drop recommendations for Microsoft Surface with controversial reports of excessive failure rate. Again, I picked this one up from Daring Fireball, um, and it was also sent to me by Mac Jim. Have you seen that one? I, I, no, I didn't see no, that. I didn't notice that. It was uh, it was in the last day or so. It was suddenly all over the net that consumer reports who. Um, you can probably tell me this, Scott, but I'm under the impression that they're a sort of American version of which is that would that be correct in that they yeah. you know sort of review and rate a variety of products they, is that the sort they of... are yeah, and they they have a reputation for being reliable and trustworthy. They've been around for a long time it it's basically it's been a print magazine for a long, long time, and of course now they're on the web as well but I have issues with consumer reports that I won't go into here, but yeah, they're basically, they're a, for better or worse, they're a trusted source of, of consumer product reviews, including, you know, from everything from cars to toasters to computers to everything. Yeah, so everything. So they are very much then here, certainly we have a, we have a, a group called Witch, question mark, who publish, yes, a print magazine. And again, they very much the same, very widely respected, um, and they do Witch car which washing machine which whatever any anything you want to know about you know for a lot of people mm -hmm. if they want to make a decision about is this 250 pound zanussi better than the 240 pound i don't know phillips tumble dryer then you know where will we go to find out well you turn to which nine times out of ten yeah well they have apparently dropped their recommendation for the microsoft surface range um with controversial reports and they do seem quite controversial that about 25 to 30 percent of microsoft surface owners are having to return their product within the first two years well <sighs> I, I kind of have an issue with that. They say that they surveyed, what was it now? It was quite a large number of people, but I, it doesn't, somehow it doesn't quite ring true. Um, I mean, as I understand it, the average return rate for most hardware, not only computers, but, you know, in general, is in the low single digits. And, that you know, if you have a product that starts having a failure rate above 10%, Basically, that, that product is almost dead in the water because the negative feedback will just kill it. Um, and it just doesn't seem to jibe. A lot of people who've commented on it, tech blogs, some people, of course, are crowing, as there are right. always people who love to, you know, ha, 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 look at this, you know, Microsoft Surface is a bag of hurt. But... It doesn't jibe with me because if that was the case, if the failure rate in, in Microsoft Surfaces was really that high, I think we'd be seeing it all over the place, wouldn't you? You'd be people people on their blogs and on their podcasts and just generally yeah. would be would be mo you know it would be a thing uh, if any product develops a fault and you know i i would think if a product is going to have a failure rate that's like i don't know 25 percent, it's going to usually focus on one particular component because there's a problem you know i mean if you think back a few years there was a problem and it wasn't just apple it was throughout the whole electronics industry because there were a load of dud capacitors well there somebody had manufactured you know however many million capacitors and they were not up to scratch and those capacitors went into everybody's computers from dell to sony to apple and as a result 
there were several products which had to be recalled. Um, the I think it was the G5 white iMac had issues at the time with the graphics mid-planar board because that some of those were fitted with these dud capacitors. Mm-hmm. And Apple issued a kind of semi-recall slash extended warranty. I remember I had one and uh, I'd had it two or three years and it was it seemed fine. And then I turned it on one day and the graphics had all just blown to hell. Um, mm. And I contacted Apple and they went, yeah, it's a known problem with that model due to these bad capacitors that flooded the industry three years before. Um, and it's covered. Just send, you know, we will, you send it back to us, we will replace the mid-planer board and send it back to you, which they did. And then it went on to do several more years of jolly good service. So... Um, but if a product starts having that kind of failure rate, everybody tends to know about it. And I just haven't seen or heard that kind of groundswell. Um, so that doesn't really ring true to me because, well, I just think we'd all have heard about it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking really about, say, the uh, the Xbox Red Ring of Death. Right, right, right. Yes, Microsoft did have a problem with with that version of the Xbox and they did have a high failure rate and Microsoft admitted it, didn't they? Because they were basically saying, if you've got a, uh, was it the 360? You know, if you've got one of these and you get the red ring of death, you just have to tell us and send it back with proof, like kind of proof of purchase and send it back and we'll send you another one. Yeah. And I mean, I knew a lad who lives, you know, halfway down our street and he was a sort of semi-professional gamer. He, at the time, he played Gears of War in a team, a sponsored team who entered tournaments and whatnot. Um, and he, he went through three or four, you know, in a year. He would just get the red ring of death and he would send it back and they'd send him another one. Um, and Microsoft acknowledged that they had that problem and it probably cost them a vast amount of money. But at the time they were trying to get their foot in the door. So I guess, you know, they just swallowed it. But everybody knew about that. And I don't right. hear mm-hmm. I, I don't hear people complaining that you shouldn't buy a Surface because they fail all the time. And if you had a 25% failure rate, my God, you would know it, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Even I remember that Xbox thing. And I'm not a gamer. Well, at least I'm not a console gamer. And I, I even I knew about that. I think you're right. I think I think people would know about this. Microsoft has pushed back on it, and they are saying that their return analysis, their failure rate analysis, shows uh, using both metrics, failure and return rates, and they're saying that these are in. Well, they're saying significantly lower than 25%. They're not saying single digit, but they're saying it's a lot lower than 25%. Microsoft would know. I mean, I guess they could lie about it, but I don't know what reason they would have to because I think think you're right. I think people would know. And Consumer Reports, again, they have weird methodologies sometimes, and I don't always trust everything they do. I'm not saying that this is definitely their failure, but I'm definitely not saying it's Microsoft's either. I, I... Right now I'm with you. I tend to believe that this is not correct. Yeah, it just just doesn't ring true to me. Some people have have queried the methodology of the survey or the uh, even the veracity of some of the people taking the survey. You know, are they all actually Microsoft Surface users, owners? Right. But, but overall, it just it, it just doesn't ring true. Is the honest truth. And uh, of course, several people have pointed out the bizarre way that Consumer Reports said that the Touch Bar MacBook Pros 
had weird, bizarre battery life issues, which mm-hmm. turned out to be that the way they were the way they were testing it was odd and caused an issue with something that Apple had put in there that was to do with controlling the battery life. And so I don't know. I mean, again, that yes, I mean that one. They kind of got a lot of stick about that, didn't they? Because they went and put it out there and started shouting about it and saying Apple's new laptop is rubbish. Whereas you would think if you were a tester or a researcher, if you started getting really unexpected results, that you would kind of look into that, not just go, oh, look, this this is... Yeah, you would, you would, well, I would, you know what I mean? If I, if I did a test and got wildly unusual results, I think I'd be looking at the methodology or wanting to kind of confirm that before I started shouting to everybody that I'd found something. Or, or I'd be asking someone else to do a similar test and see what their results were, you know? So, yeah, just, yeah the whole fact that 25% just, well, 25%, from as I understand it, you know, from a manufacturer's point of view, twenty five percent failure rate. You'd be, you'd either be recalling the whole lot, or you'd be putting them in, you know, putting them in the skip and saying we've got to scrap this model and start again. It just, it doesn't make, it doesn't, it wouldn't make commercial sense. Is the truth. So I kind of lost respect for Consumer Reports back when I was into cars because they would just do weird things like. Obviously, there's different kinds of cars. There's economy cars, there's commuter cars, there's sports cars, there's high horsepower cars, and they would rate them all based on the same criteria. So they would ding a powerful car that got terrible gas mileage and uh, maybe needed maintenance, more maintenance than certain other cars because they got poor gas mileage and needed more maintenance than other cars. But when people <laughs> buy those cars, they know that's not what they care about at all. And yet Yeah, they... uh, exactly. You can't really compare, can you? I don't know. Uh... Kia subcompact to a Ferrari. It's not in the right. same ballpark. And as you say, but you, you you know, if you're looking at small cars, economy cars, you know, if you're running a one point one litre four cylinder lean petrol burn commuter car, then you're looking for a different set of criteria to if you're going out and buying a Porsche 911 or whatever, it just, yeah, so you can't, you wouldn't, that would be akin in my mind to saying, well, we're going to rate all these computers on the same criteria, be they subcompact ultralight laptops all the way up to, you know, big iron servers. And again, you, you need different criteria, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, a server rack has different purposes and different different needs i mean how long you can run your server with no downtime whatsoever is probably it almost its biggest point (laughs) an ultralight laptop yeah sometimes you see people ding some of those for saying oh this ultralight laptop only gets a battery life of four hours you know as opposed to uh, this full-blown sort of desktop replacement type laptop which gets eight to ten hours well that's not necessarily unsurprising is it if you've got a 15 inch five pound monster desktop replacement laptop you can have honking great batteries in it and if you're making an ultra light 10 inch laptop how much battery can you put in it so uh okay oh and i i tell you what on the on a similar vein of uh apples and oranges uh who was this the cult of mac reported this but and i've seen it reported elsewhere uh strategy analytics have said that xiaomi now takes the top wearable spot 
and I have got a link to the excruciatingly long full report, but the, the original says, Xiaomi, the Chinese company which once specialised in brazen iPhone rip-offs, has overtaken Apple and Fitbit to become the number one manufacturer of wearables based on shipments. Well, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with these at all, Scott, but the Xiaomi uh, fitness band sells for, well, in this country, uh, on Amazon, they're about 18 to 25 pounds. Mm-hmm. So unsurprisingly, they probably sell like hotcakes. Um, and of course, your Apple Watch starts at, what, £269, $269 thereabouts. Yeah. So, I, you know, I just don't... <laughs> Comparing those by shipments is, again, uh, and it's apples and oranges, isn't it? I think so. I think so. I mean, I wouldn't even compare a Fitbit and an Apple Watch. And No. I mean, my daughter has a Fitbit, uh, which she really likes. But, I mean, it cost about £50, I think. Um, and it's a nice... You know, it's a nice enough little thing. Looks like a. It tells her the time, and it does various. It does more than just track her steps. Uh, it does a few other things that she notifies her of text messages and things. But the Xiaomi My Band yeah, costs approximately fifteen dollars in the US. Well, according to me, it's slightly more, uh, and offers very limited features. While well, Apple's premium Apple Watch starts at two hundred and sixty-nine dollars and is a high-end premium device. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, very I much don't... true. And if you look at the if you look at the link they have to the bracelet, the smart bracelet they call it. It's uh, I don't even know. These are not they they're not even trying to be the same thing. They're not even trying. No, this is it's not. This, it's it, you follow the thing, and a it's a it's a it's a rubber band which the sort of Fitbit trackery thing presses into. And you know, good for Xiaomi. They're producing something at the very cheap end that does very limited things, and it sells well. Apple are doing something completely different. Uh, the, if you follow through from the Cult of Mac to the strategy uh, analytics page, uh, there's a fairly clickbaity headline and uh, sort of a summary. But if you then wish to follow the link in that page, which takes you to the full excruciating, you know, forty-eight page analysis of the whole uh, sector. The truth is, actually, as far as I can see, strategy analytics are merely analysing the market. And their biggest takeaway is that Fitbit are essentially getting squeezed from both ends in the, at the pre, you know they don't have a premium device to compete with the Apple Watch mm-hmm. and uh, at the low end people like Xiaomi and no doubt nameless endless other nameless Chinese manufacturers can churn out basic fitness devices or step trackers and heart rate monitors and whatnot for nothing pennies sure. um, yep. and that leaves Fitbit in between a rock and a hard place um, and I think that's a story we've seen I guess that's the story we've seen played out endlessly isn't it there are, there are two there are two options in a market go high or go low and if you're caught in the middle good luck so uh, but yes I, that very much caught me is like we were saying about consumer reports very much uh, apples and oranges but um I think the truth about that that story as well was that the uh, that was a terrible clickbait headline and actually strategy strategy analytics merely uh, are producing a document a white paper for people who actually want to know about the whole of that market. So 
I think we're coming to the end, don't you, Scott? I think we've pretty much... Oh, no, there's one here for you. Do you want to take the lead on this? You wanted to talk about Ulysses. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing everybody listening to this podcast knows by now that the Apple Sphere is very angry because the popular Ulysses writing app has now gone to a subscription model. And what this means is that instead of paying a separate uh, steep price for the Mac edition of Ulysses and a separate and steep for iOS price for the iOS version, you now pay a subscription fee to them every year, of course, and then you get to use both of those apps. Um, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger, of course, and they I'm sure they knew they were going to generate the get the outrage machine fired up when they go to subscriptions. But what interested me about this wasn't so much Ulysses itself as just the the whole topic of subscriptions. And I, I don't think we need to have that whole conversation here now because it's quite lengthy and involved. But what I would love for the tech writers, the tech podcasters who are in the Apple sphere, <clears throat> sorry, to to kind of acknowledge is that, okay, we we know that it's tough for developers to make money in the, in the current app economy. It just is. And I think people don't understand that one-time purchases don't make developers enough money to continue su supporting and developing their app. Free upgrades for life, that's just not really an option if you want people to continue to make software. On the other hand, there is uh, such a thing as subscription fatigue, and it's real, and it has real reasons too. It's not just that people hate subscriptions, which they do, because let's face it, a subscription is a bill. It's just a bill. It's by another name. It's a bill that you get all the time for the thing that you're using, and you're, it's gonna ha it's always going to come back. It never ends. And so people do get tired of that. The psychology of it's not good. But the thing that bugs me the most about subscription apps and services, especially on iOS, are that they tend to be very uh, beneficial to one person only. Like I, most of them are in-app purchases. I can't share a Ulysses subscription with my family. They have to make their own in-app purchase. Right. And there's only so many things like that that I can justify to myself before I start feeling like I'm stealing money from my family. Because if I get a Netflix subscription, we can all watch that. If I do Amazon Prime, we can all benefit from that. If I get a 1Password subscription, we can even all benefit from that. We can share our passwords. That's fine. But a lot of these things, you can't do that. And I wonder if app developers aren't underestimating how many of these people, how many of these bills, let's be honest, that's what they are, how many of these bills people want to take on before they start realizing, you know, I'm spending all this money that none of the rest of the people in my family can benefit from, and I'm just not going to do it anymore. I think I just wish I, that people would have some honest conversation about that aspect yeah, of it too is all. I, I think, and, and this is something that we've discussed here, and no doubt it's been discussed endlessly elsewhere, and, and I've said before that obviously because of my work, um, we have an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription mm -hmm. and that my bosses and their, you know, accounts department, um, we're a very small company, there's only like 12 of us, so saying the accounts department makes it sound like there's a whole load of bean counters, no there's not, but it, uh, <laughs> they like the Adobe subscription service. And I can understand why, because it means they have a level, yeah, instead of having to shell out, oh, there's a huge new creative, you know, suite upgrade and we need three copies or two copies and that's going to set us back two grand, three grand, whatever. 
you know, they are paying out a fixed price per seat for the three of us, two of us, three of us that use it. And that can be fed through the accounts and that's a fixed outgoing and that's traded against, obviously, our return. But then, you know, we are a a company um, and we're using those products commercially and therefore the cost proportionately is small in return for what we get, you know, the amount of money we generate using those apps. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, from Adobe's point of view, that means they have a constant stream. They have X number of, you know, I don't know, however many million users paying in so much. <clears throat> and, and that's, so I can see the point. And like Microsoft with, with the, the Office 365, again, we have a couple of Office subscriptions because we need access to Word and Excel and so on. And again, because Office is become, you know, almost a de facto standard for business everywhere and everybody feels that they have to have it and they have to use it, the cost per seat from a, from a, a company point of view is small. And so, again, I can understand that. And I can understand why lots of other companies think that they would like to get onto that onto that model. But mm-hmm. as a personal user, right. as a home user, as somebody who sometimes deals with non-profits or charities or, you know, hobbyists... That's a terrible deal. Who, if you're a non-profit and you want to produce leaflets or posters or whatever else, I mean, I'm talking purely about my own sphere. Sure. But can you justify laying out 20, 30, 40 pounds or dollars a month? No, you can't. And the other thing is, you're quite right, there's, there's subscription fatigue. It's all right. It's not too bad when you say, okay, well, the bill for using um, Creative Cloud is this, and the bill for using Microsoft Office is that. But if I started saying all of, you know, nearly all of the tools that I use all the peripheral tools that I use in my job also had to be subscribed to £2 a month, £5 a month, £10 a month, what it be it what, you're going to end up with a monstrous collection yes. of, of, of bills. You're right. And you feel like you're being held to ransom. And people only have so much money to spend, don't they? You know, we all only right. have so much, you know, cash coming in one end and so much we can let out the other. And um, in a similar way, uh, Jeff and Brian on, on TMO were talking about the siloization. I'm not sure if that's a real word, but that's what they called it. I know what they mean. The compartmentalization of, of TV content in that Disney want to pull, or the, at the end of their contract with Netflix, they're going to pull their content and start their own streaming service uh, for which they're going to want a subscription. And Jeff was saying, you know, I'm a cord cutter. I don't have cable TV. And until now, it's been, right, well, I have Hulu and I have Amazon and I have Netflix. But as this all starts to fracture into everybody wanting to get onto the same game, what, I'm going to have to pay to pay Disney and then I'm going to have to pay HBO and I'm going to have to pay Netflix and Amazon and Apple Music. And, and you're saying, like, that's all starting to mount up to a point where it's like, well, perhaps I should just go back to cable TV. 
Um, and that, that applies to everything, doesn't it? That really does apply. I mean, it's, in this particular case, I mean, I, I've heard of Ulysses. I'm, it's a writer's software, isn't it, for people who you know do long-form writing? Am I correct? Yeah, it's primarily that, although I know a lot of people use it for notes as well. But it's, yeah, it's for a long, it's a text editor. It's a plain text editor that supports Markdown, and it, it's versatile. It's nice. I'll give it that. And, and you know, if you make your living as a writer, um, subscriptions might be great. They might seem like a, a great alternative, and I, I get why companies do this, but yeah, it just goes back to, for me, something that's in the Mac App Store, I don't know, for me, especially something that's in the iOS App Store, still seems mainly aimed at end consumers to me more than businesses. That might be a mm. false impression, but but and, okay, fine. If you make your life as, if you make your living as a writer like um, Federico Vitici or something, but yes, it's it's basically just a plain text editor. It, it's not something special and fancy that all screenwriters in Hollywood use or whatever. It's it's a text editor. Right. So yeah, you'd see there. And that is where I think you and I would take issue with that. You know, I'm not paying you five dollars, two dollars, whatever a month to use this because if I'm not using it to make money, A, why would I you know, why would I want to pay you a constant stream of money, even if I understand that, yeah, you know, free upgrades for life is is not a thing and I'm not entitled to that but at the same time well you know there's a million other word processors slash text editors out there available from prices from nothing to as much as i want to pay mm-hmm. um and I, I i think this software as a service model which was spouted about so much is very nice for the people who are running that and you know, I understand their need to make a living, but you are going to get resentment because people are going to start to feel they're being held hostage. But these things come in waves, don't they? You know, it, it will become, for a lot of people will want to do that and think it's the fashionable thing and we can sell this as software as a service and then there'll be a backlash. The pendulum will swing back because either users or some developers will say there's an opening in the market here. People are sick of paying out $10 a month to use something to write their letters on. Why don't we sell them an app for $20 a time? Yeah. yeah, and every year we can say to them, "Oh, here's a new version with upgrade, you know, with some new features, or works better with the latest OS." So I think there are always going to be some people who say, "Well, the best way to do this is to flog it, you know, pile it high and flog it cheap." Um, and I guess in the end it will all settle out, and so we will true. find. I guess we will find that some things lend themselves. And I've said this um, on this show. Uh, I, I think me and Carl Madden have said it that some things provide enough utility and are used often enough by enough people that they can you feel you can justify subscribing to it and if the cost isn't too high that you get enough utility from it but where we we when we looked at the set app idea which by the way includes Ulysses we said we don't think that we would want to pay five pounds or ten pounds a month because it doesn't appear to contain anything which we feel would justify that ongoing expense whereas we both said that if somebody was to do a similar idea but with a a library of games that would probably be a goer because you would play a game for a while and then when you're bored of it or whatever move on to another game in the library as it were so you'd be subscribing to a library of games but that I, i feel that is a bit more like subscribing to a 
streaming music, although mm-hmm. I'm I'm a bit of an old get off my lawn when it comes to <laughs> music streaming, and uh, I'm quite happy, thank you, with all my own music files. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, okay uh, yeah. The, I'm okay with the concept of music streaming. Uh, in reality, I'm not putting my money behind it just because there's too many other things that come first. And and I think you're right. There are, and I'm not knocking subscription services in concept. It's just that not every bloody app can be a subscription. Like you can't, like the it, there's so many shopping list apps, for example, that want you to pay a subscription. I'm like, no, I, I'll i use Notepad if I have to. I don't, Yeah. it's not exactly. that important to me. I'm not a professional shopper. I just want to get some groceries. <laughs> this, this is this is yeah. This is the thing, isn't it? And it's something that has come up again and again. And that is particularly on iOS. A lot of the things on iOS and the things that work best a lot of the time on iOS are effectively one-trick ponies. Mm-hmm. There are, as you say, there are an, an endless stream of be they shopping list apps or to-do apps or be they, or journaling apps or. But those are the sort of things that really you'll probably pay if you, you know, if you're using it and you like it and you have a use for it, you'd probably happily pay two dollars, five dollars, maybe a maybe a really good journaling app for your iPad. You might even pay ten dollars for, you know, and happily if that's something you're into. But. No, I'm not going to give you 50p a month, you know, for a shopping list app because, well, because what, yeah, what do you do for me that Notepad doesn't or reminders? You can set a reminder, go to the shop and buy milk. um, So something, yes, as you say, not every damn app in the world can justify a subscription. It just doesn't work. Uh, It just doesn't. Some things, a few, and I suspect you, as this plays out, a lot of people may find that uh, it's a lot less things in the world can justify or sustain a software as a service model than a lot of people would like to think. Yeah, I, I, I really do. And I think some people are going to find themselves that they've painted themselves into a corner and they're either going to have to back down or, you know, they might find that they go to the wall as a result because I don't know this Ulysses, I don't use it, but I could imagine if you pitch that wrong, either at the wrong price or because it doesn't really present enough utility to enough people that you could find your user, you know, what the monthly active users numbers crashing through the floor as people just say, well, to hell with that, I'll go and use something else. I don't know. Bear or write or Scrivener or I mean, let's face it, writing writing apps are quite literally ten a penny, aren't they? Everything yeah. from LibreOffice on up uh, offers you a text editor or a or a word processor of some kind. Um so yeah, I I wouldn't like to make a prediction about this one in particular. I don't know about you either, but I just I think it's just going to lead. There's going to be a shake-up, and some people are going to try this, and it's going to work for them. But I think that is mostly going to be the big boys. You've got Adobe and Microsoft and probably a few others who I think could probably pull it off. And I think a few other people are going to try it, and they're going to crash and burn. Yeah, I think so too. I do. There we go. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Scott, for coming on my show and uh, helping me. And uh, would you like uh, to shill yourself a bit? (laughs) 
Oh, sure. Why not? Uh, you can find, sorry, you can find my other podcast at Don't Nihongo It Alone. The URL is nihongo.audio, N-I-H-O-N-G-O dot audio. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Scott A.W. But sometimes I yell about politics, so you don't have to. Well, <laughs> I do live in modern America, so I have to yell about politics. Well, everybody has to yell about politics occasionally, one way or the other. Everybody has politics of some sort, so everybody is entitled to shout their politics at some point, aren't they? Everybody has a right to get on the soapbox. (laughs) So, uh, well, thank you very much. This has been quite a long show, and I think I might have to do a bit of editing to... (laughs) Maybe I might have to trim it down a bit, but never mind. We shall see. Uh, I can be found on the Twitter as at... Serenak, that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. Mark is at Ocean Speed. You can follow the show as at Essential Apple. And, of course, you can follow our website. You can find us on Pinecast, Google+, Facebook, uh, and probably anywhere else that we can find to stick our drivel. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. And this show is, of course, part of the MyMac podcast network where you can find such other excellent shows as Bart Boo Shots Let's Talk podcasts. You can listen to the My Mac show with Guy and Gaz the G-Men. There are the three geeky ladies, the tech fan, the geekiest show ever, and uh, oh, the Nintendo Club podcast and more. So I think for today, that's it. And from me and Scott, it's goodbye. Looking for a podcast to get your geek on? Then listen to my favorite ladies' podcast, The Three Geeky Ladies. Join Alyssa, Suze, and Vicky as they discuss tech products and other topics that caught their attention. The Three Geeky Ladies' podcast on the My Mac Podcasting Network. Ha 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 